Lord, this morning, first of all, uh, before we really engage you, I want to thank you uh, for mothers and thank you for the sweet ministry that you have to us through mothers. And um, I would pray that mothers are well-loved today and uh, that they are ministered to and that our appreciation of you is directed at them, through them, back to you, recognizing that you've blessed us in the mother. And um, Lord, also I want to pray for those that today, while it's a day of celebration for most, that today may be a day of heartache for some as we deal with mothers that have gone to be with you, or mothers that may, may have never known you, our tragic um, stories about mothers. I want this morning to ask you to minister to those who may be in that spot this morning. And Lord, most of all this morning, we want to enjoy you. And um, we just pray that these next few minutes, as the last few have been directed to you in worship, pray that our um, act of worship in these next few minutes will be a preaching truth and hearing truth and receiving truth and laying our lives bare and available and accessible. Lord, pray that you will change us um, to look more like your son as a result of the time that we spend together in your word. Lord, we are so thankful to be uh, together among your people this morning. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> We're in John chapter 15. Today we're going to be looking at three verses. John chapter 15, verses 9 through 11. If you've been here for a period of time, you know the context. If you haven't, let me just briefly share with you. These are the hours before Christ goes to the cross. Uh, He's walked with these guys for three years. Um, At this point, there are only 11 of them because Judas has left the table. We're in the final hours before he goes to the cross and... It's just a sea of red letters if you look in these next few chapters on through 17 uh, where Christ is engaging the disciples, where he's praying for them. It's just really a sweet, amazing time uh, that we, but it's a sober time. I was thinking just the other day, thinking about the life of our church and where we are as a people right now. We're sort of in a sober time in the word. And I think that's appropriate because we're in a sober time in the story. Um. The hours that go through the, the hours that led before the cross would not have been a time of really lighthearted fare. They would have been time of dealing with some really deep, important issues. So that's where we are this morning. Um, we're going to be in verses 9 through 11. What I'd like to do is look at verses 9 and 10 together first, and then verse 11 separately. But what I'm going to draw out this morning that I think is clearly communicated here are three important things that... I'm going to throw a word out there. It's not a, 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 it may be a preacher word for some of you. I hope it's not. It's just a good word. Three words that are, three things that are inextricably linked. They're so tied together that it's dangerous to even pull them apart and look at them in isolation. So it's appropriate for us to engage them in one sermon, in one morning together, these three things. And you'll see them as we tease them apart. Starting in verse 9 of chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
We'll look at the, the third verse, verse 11, later on in the message. What you're going to see in these couple of verses and in the third verse is you're seeing a contrasting relationship. Christ is teaching his disciples on his relationship that he is to have with his disciples, and the model is the relationship that he has had and continues to have with the Father. He's contrasting this vertical thing to help them understand this horizontal thing. A relationship between he and Father contrasted with he and follower. And some of the things that are teased out just from these couple of verses is, as the Father has loved Christ, so Christ loved the disciples, and we could say us as well. As the Father has loved Christ, Christ loves us. As Christ kept his Father's commands, we are to keep Christ's commands. And the third thing, as Christ abides in his Father's love, we are to abide in Christ's love. Those are some things that are clearly communicated here in this passage. So I thought what we'd do this morning, we would engage the first of the three issues I want to engage this morning is abiding in his love. Abiding in his love. Since Christ is contrasting his relationship with his Father, then he would be an appropriate place for us to go to understand what this looks like. So turn to John chapter 4. <clears throat> We're going to look at some snapshots of the relationship, relationship between Christ and his Father that will hopefully inform what our relationship with Christ should look like. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. Let me give you context. This is in Samaria. Jesus has been speaking with the Samaritan woman. Uh, the disciples have gone on into town to grab some food. And we pick up here in verse 31 when the disciples come back with chow. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat, something of substance, some physical burger or taco or some sort of loaves or fishes or something of substance? And he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. If Christ is the model for abiding in the Father's love, or if he's the model for how we to abide in his love, we can look at how he abode, I guess that's the past tense of abide, in the Father's love. And right here he says, you know what? Doing the Father's will is more important to me than food. Man, I'm looking at that and I'm going, whew. If this is the model for how I'm supposed to love Christ, can I really say that my love for Christ and my desire to do his will is more important to me than food? Any of you who know me well know that I will cut you if you get between me and my food. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so, I'm thinking, man, it's so dangerous to make, a, to make a, a transition to the physical, but I think this is appropriate. This is in a very physical context where Christ is hungry, you would expect. The disciples are hungry. He hasn't eaten for a period of time, and they're bringing him some grub from Samaritan Bell or Samaritan Central. I don't know what it would be. Some Samaritan fair. He says, you know what? My food is to do the Father's will. I'm looking at this and I'm thinking to myself, what would we look like if, it was, if, we, if his will was more important to us than our own physical food? And I don't mean what would we look like. I mean, really, what would we look like? Physically, what would we look like? 
I, I realize I'm stepping out into a very dangerous place in Greenville, Texas to put this out here, but I'm dealing with something that really we're going to deal with later on in the message a couple of times. It's a sin that we wear, and it's a sin that I can speak to because I've spent most of my life medicating with food. I've wrestled most of my life and wrestle now with being overweight. Most of my life has been an issue for me. And I ask myself the question, this obese person that's on the inside of me, what would I look like if doing Jesus' will was more important to me than food? How would I, how could I medicate and continue to medicate with food? What would God's people look like if we ate God's will? And then, oh yeah, we need to get some nourishment. It seems as if Christ's handling of food is just for nourishment's sake and not for medication. He's so consumed with his Father's will. He says, that's my food. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Jump down to verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Moving to a different topic, same issue. Being consumed, so absolutely consumed and enveloped in the father's love. That here he's saying, my father's work is my work. It's not I'm doing some of the Father's work. It's my work is to do His work. He's been working up till now, and now I'm working. And the Son does nothing apart from Him. I mean, let's, let's find some purchase in what this would look like on Tuesday. Do you think of your job on Tuesday or Friday or whatever day of the week you go to a job, you actually do a job? Do you think I am actually doing the Father's work here? You should. That's what it means to abide in his love. Can you do that at L3? Absolutely. Man, there are faithful people throughout our Bible stories who were doing a job, a centurion whose faith was big. There, there are ways to do your job as an act of worship and abide in his love. And that's what the picture is here. Christ is doing the Father's work. You think about your job at L3 or at Rubbermaid or at the office as the Father's work, that's what it means to abide in His love. Look over at verse 30. Same chapter. Chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. I can do nothing on my own. To abide for Christ, to abide in the Father's love, shows this extreme, relentless, uber-dependence on the Father. Where the Son of God, who according to Hebrews, actually was the agent of creation, says, I can do nothing on my own. I am so dependent on the Father that I can do nothing on my own. Do you have that view about yourself relative Christ? I can do nothing on my own. I cannot parent. I cannot husband. I cannot wife. I cannot work. I cannot worship. I cannot preach. I can do nothing on my own. That's what it means to abide in his love if Christ is the model. Now look at chapter 7, verse 16. <clears throat> 
So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Even the words that he is teaching these disciples as they go by the way, as they sit on a hillside, as they're in a boat, as they're eating a meal together, as they're sitting in the synagogue together, as they're sitting in the temple together, the very words that he is sharing with the disciples are not even his own words. The very words that he is giving them are the words that the Father has given him. Can you really think about the conversations that you have with your family, that you have with your friends, that you have with others, and say, man, gobs of the conversation that I have with other people are not even my own words. They're the words of Christ. If he's the model for abiding, and he's saying, as I abide in the Father's love, you abide in my love, we've got to make these sort of comparisons, and we've got to ask these sort of hard questions. Are our thoughts and our mouths so consumed and so saturated with his word that that's what comes out of our hearts and mouths. That's what he's talking about here. And then in John chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority. Nothing. Do you hear that? It's pretty extreme. I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak Just as, you hear that? That's pretty extreme. Just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do. Again, extreme. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. What I'm hearing here in Christ relative to the Father is I'm hearing a son who is consumed with his Father. He is obsessed with his Father. And he's saying that as he abides in the Father's love, we are to abide in his love. This obsession should characterize our obsession for Christ. There's no room for cruise control in worship. There's no room for moderation in pursuing Christ. What's presented here in this picture of abiding is that this is all there. What we're seeing in Christ is this obsessed fatherward orientation through every step of every day. This disposition in all that he has and all that he does that's directed at his very own father. That's abiding in the father's love. And this is how we are to abide in Christ. Turn to Acts chapter 17. I want to show you a picture of this. I've never preached this passage before, but it's one that was on my heart as I was preparing this message today. Acts chapter 17, I'm just going to read, preach one little excerpt, one little line. Acts chapter 17, there's an account where Paul is preaching to the Athenians in a place called the Areopagus. And it's sort of a place of learning and discussion and rhetoric And apparently it's surrounded by statues to all these different gods. And one of the gods was the unknown God. And Paul says, I'm preaching about the unknown God. I'm going to make him known to you today in so many words. And Paul must have been a student of Greek philosophy. Because here in verse 28, he quotes a guy named Epimenides. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. He also quoted him over in Titus when he's writing to Titus, and he says, all Cretans are liars. Both of those quotes come from this guy named Epimenides. He was a Greek philosopher, and in this one poem, he says, all Cretans are liars, which was funny because he was a Cretan too. 
It actually created this thing called the, the Epimenides Paradox, where if a Cretan is saying all Cretans are liars, what are you really saying? It's funny if you think about it. It has nothing to do with the sermon. I just think it's funny. But right here, he's quoting Epimenides. And the funny thing is, is Epimenides is writing about Zeus. He says, in Zeus is who he's thinking of as he's writing these words. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. And Paul uses a Greek philosopher as a preaching point. It's just the weirdest thing in the world. This thing that this guy is saying about Zeus, Paul is saying is true about God. I want to show you just a weird picture of what this might look like. Let's hit this, this video. I gave that more time than we should have, <laughs> but I just thought it was a great video. Um, it would be like me grabbing that video as a preaching point and saying that, let's sing that about God. That's what that was like. I mean, for Paul to refer to a Greek philosopher would be like me referring to, what was the guy's name? Jackie Wilson? And the words he said about your love lifting me higher and higher and higher. He's probably singing about his girlfriend. But we take those words and we sing them about God. That's exactly what he did with Epimenides here. He took words that were about Zeus and he said, no, these are true about my God. So what I want to do in these next couple minutes is I want us to explore those words. In him we live and move and have our being. What I believe is being said here, it's a sweet picture of abiding. A sweet picture of what abiding looks like. It's a view of Tuesday, which to me is the most ordinary, ordinary day of the week. A view of Tuesday that says, I'm going to get up this morning in Christ. I'm going to get up this morning in Christ. I'm going to dwell in him. I'm going to dwell in his goodness and his gospel and his grace and his love today. And as I shave my face, which I don't do very often, but were I to shave, as I feel the cut of that razor 
and the feel of a cleanly shaven face, I realize that that whole sensation I'm only experiencing because of Christ. Colossians says in him we move. And Colossians says he is the one in whom all things are held together. So the fact that I have a nerve that can tell my brain that my face is clean shaven is only because of Christ. So I get up in the morning thinking about it from the outset. As I breathe, I realize my breath is a gift from this God and this Christ with just the absolute perfect amount of oxygen and carbon dioxide. And then I think, man, I need to take some nourishment, but I don't get up thinking I'm going to stuff my face. I think I'm going to get up and I'm going to take some nourishment in Christ. Whoever came up with blessing their meal before they ate, which Christ certainly did, must, we must realize that blessing our meal should not be a rote thing. It should be a conscious engagement. Lord, guard my flesh from stuffing itself and guide my heart into eating in faith. May I eat in faith, taking nourishment in Christ. itself a miracle that we can take in something that's dead. Organic stuff that's dead and that will sustain life. That's a miracle in and of itself. We take it in as a blessing. Ask that we eat in faith. Not to medicate. Enjoying the God of the food, not the food God. And then we think, I'm going to go off to work. And I'm going to work heartily as unto the Lord. And I'm going to speak the truth in love while I'm in the workplace. And I'm going to offer up my moments and my opportunities and my blessings right back to Him as my living sacrifice. And then I'll come home tonight and I might watch a show. I might relax. I might spend time with my family. But more than anything, I want to rest in Him. When I lay my head on my pillow enjoying his mercy and giving me a Tuesday, I'll pray his involvement and blessings over my Wednesday and over my May and over my 2010. And I'll pray his love and his blessings over, his, over our family and our church and over Greenville and over Kazakhstan and Jordan. To abide in Him, to abide in Him like we live in Him is to have a view of His expanse and His character and His ways and His mystery that really has us consumed with Him. The abider lives in Him. The abider moves in Him, in His car, on His bike, on His feet, in a boat. On a plane, wherever we go, we are in Him. As mobile as we think we are, our boundaries must be confined. Our travels must be confined to His borders. Because we live and we move in Him. About a year ago, I, uh, I don't know why this isn't Food Sunday, but this is just something that this is... Lord has given each of us some things that we struggle with. And for me, it's been food my entire life. I was an overweight kid growing up, stuttered so bad I couldn't get a sentence out. And I'm sure it's connected to this obesity thing. And I've struggled with my entire life. About a year ago, actually it was January last year, the Lord convicted me that my message did not reconcile with my visual message. That if I'm truly content and captivated, if he is my food, how can my body preach another message? And last year, I, um, in, in faith, 
stepped out in this exercise thing and it became a cycling thing for me. I used to cycle when I was in college and it became a cycling thing for me, uh, a focus of, of that. And uh, Mark Atkinson is a, a riding buddy of mine and Mark and I were coming home from a race this Thursday night. I was telling Mark about this message and the Lord convicted me. The cycling is that far from becoming a God for Ben McGraw. And he convicted me of this specific passage. In him we live and we move and have our being. And I thought, man, I don't cycle in him. My cycling is absolutely disconnected from my God. And Mark said, what, you don't pray when you go up a hill? And I said, no. He does. He does. He said, you don't pray for a race? I said, no. (laughs) I think I pray sometimes afterwards. I didn't crash or something. But it's not a worship thing for me. But when I engage this passage and I realize in him we live and we move and we have our being and I have this picture of abiding in him, then how could I cycle apart from him? This thing that originally started out as as an act of worship, that I'm going to try and buffet my body for the glory of God and let my message, my body reconcile with my mouth, can so easily become a God. The Lord convicted me that I need to cycle in him. Sounds stupid, but I think that's worship. In him we have our being. The 1600s, the early 1600s, there was a man named Rene Descartes. He was a mathematician and a philosopher. Some of y'all that are into math, you've heard, or if you paid attention in, in school, the Cartesian coordinates and all that, that came from Rene Descartes. Rene Descartes also came up with... a a statement, I think, therefore I am, or I am thinking, therefore I exist. Been discussed in um, philosophy classes for however many years it's been since then, but he, in essence, became the father of modern rationalism. And you might think that little statement pretty innocuous and innocent, I think, therefore I am, but what you need to realize is your mind and the way you think as a Westerner is shaped more by that than you probably realize. Because what this has done to the Western mind, it's created this thing in us where we think, if I can think it, then it is. And the flip side of that is, if I can't think it, then it's not. I see people reject the faith time after time again. I cannot get my head around this. Or reject a difficult teaching. I can't think this, so it must not be. That's rationalism. And I wouldn't be surprised if in some way this is tempered how anybody could possibly digest that it's okay to abort a baby because they're tempered by some view that if it doesn't think, then it must not be. That little statement is far from innocuous. But the worshiper who recognizes that in him we live and move and have our being says, no, this is not true. I don't think, therefore I am. That's not true. What is true is that God is and he created me for worship and wonder and awe and my very existence is in him. That's where I find being. Apart from him, I'm really not. I am only in so much as I am in him, walking with him, enjoying him, marveling at him, reading about him, discussing him and searching him. So I abide in who he is 
and what he's done and what he has yet to do. Really, to abide in his love as he abide in the Father's love is to be pretty doggone obsessed with Christ. That's strong. It's fanatical. It's consumed. And I think that's what worship is. I think that's what he's describing here. Abiding in his love is to deluge Tuesday with him. It's connected to obedience. The second thing I want to talk about this morning, it's in this passage clearly. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. This abiding and obedience goes together. Obedience for Christ was abiding. For those abiding in Christ's love, doing what he says becomes more important to you than doing what you say. He trumps you is what obedience means. And there will always be a you. And it will likely fly in the face of what he says. But obedience means doing what he says, not what you want to do. And I can promise you, it will never be hard to rationalize away or reason away doing what he says. But clearly Christ says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. During the Reformation, there was a key figure, a man named Martin Luther, that most of us have heard about, if not all of us. The Catholic Church had become kind of a works-driven uh, religion uh, where you earned your salvation or you maintained your salvation through, during, through doing certain things. And Martin Luther addressed a few things, but that being the prominent thing, he addressing indulgences and things like that, but he came pretty aggressive against this issue of works salvation. And he presented something called sola fide, by faith alone. Martin Luther thankfully addressed the Catholic Church, or I'd be wearing a funny hat and we'd be trying to earn our salvation. And he said, it's not by your works. It's by faith alone that we are saved. And a product of the Reformation was this group of people that misunderstood Martin Luther and came up with something called antinomianism. The word means against law. It's a group of people that misunderstood what Luther is saying and said, I guess commandments and law don't matter anymore. They are irrelevant. But what you need to know, I'm going to show you what Martin Luther had to say about these jokers in a minute. What you need to know regarding commandments and law, you need to know that Christ imported all of the commandments into the New Testament with the exception of possibly one. And that one would be the Sabbath. He didn't present this notion of continuing to set Saturday apart as a special day. The book of Hebrews shows us that he became our Sabbath. So he actually fulfilled that portion of the law. Every day is our Sabbath rest in Christ. So we practice the Sabbath today, tomorrow, Tuesday, Saturday. It's every day for the people of God. Because the work is indeed finished as he sits at the Father's right hand. When he said it's finished, Sabbath began. And we're living in the Sabbath right now. Every other commandment's been imported into the New Testament. The Gospels are full of the commandments. The Sermon on the Mount is saturated with commandment. Jesus says, you have heard it said this, 
But I say this, you have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, if you harbor anger in your heart towards someone, you murder. You have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even do it in your mind and your heart, you're committing adultery. Thinking about another woman with lust. Antinomians got it wrong. Tragically wrong. Luther comes up against these guys. I want to read a few excerpts from a paper called Against the Antinomians that Luther wrote. Luther says, a guy that you would think would be hyper-grace, which he is. He's coming up against the church that is trying to earn its salvation. He's saying, no, you can't do that. Salvation is by grace through faith. But regarding the law, commandment, he says, I wonder exceedingly how it came to be imputed to me that I should reject the law or Ten Commandments. There being extant so many of my expositions and those of several sorts upon the commandments. In other words, I've been preaching on the commandments for a long doggone time. Which also are daily expounded and used in our churches to say nothing of the confession and apology in other books of ours. Add hereunto the custom we have to sing the commandments in two different tunes. Man, the antinomians that say that the commandments and law have no use anymore, they're irrelevant. Martin Luther saying, man, we even sing them. We sing them in two different tunes. We got the contemporary service and the traditional service singing them. Besides the painting, printing, carving, and rehearsing them by children, both morning, noon, and evening. He says, I myself, as old as I am, used to have it for my custom to recite them daily as a child. Word for word. So that if any should have mistaken what I had written, he might in reason have been persuaded to call upon me and demand these or the like questions. These jokers, these antinomians that came up with this thing as a result of my teaching should have come to me and asked me what I thought about the law. And I'll tell you, you need it. They should have come to me and asked me about commandment. And I'll tell them, you need that sweet guide. He says, can it be imaginable that there should be any sin where there is no law. Whosoever abrogates the law or does away with the law is unnecessary or irrelevant or does away with commandment must of necessity abrogate sin also. If he must suffer sin to be, he must much more suffer the being of the law. For the apostle saith in Romans 5, where no law is, there is no sin. If there be no sin, then Christ is nothing. For why died he if there were no law or sin for which he ought to die? Hence you may say, the devil intends by this ghostly gamble to take away not so much the law as Christ, the fulfiller of the law. He says the antinomians have taken Christ out of the story. You don't even know who Christ is apart from commandment. You don't even know that you need salvation apart from law and commandment. And the antinomians were doing the devil's work. He says, the devil's main plot, therefore, is to make people secure. Listen to this. It's like he's reading our mail in Greenville. The devil's main plot, then, is to make people secure and to teach them to slight both law and sin. Icky commandment talk. No thanks. That's the devil's work. 
That when they are once suddenly overtaken either by death or in an evil conscience, they may without any remedy sink into hell as having been accustomed to all manner of sensuality and taught nothing else in Christ but a sweet security. He's talking about the antinomians that are teaching grace apart from the, the obedience of the law. That these people are so neck deep in sensuality, they've taught, been taught nothing else except Christ but a sweet security. So that when terrors of conscience seize on them, they take it for a certain sign that Christ, who can be nothing but sweetness itself, had reprobated and forsaken them. This the devil seeks and would fain compass. Man, I wonder if the church hadn't swung to the other direction. I wonder if we hadn't swung to the other, other direction to misunderstand grace, to think that, man, we sin all the more. Psh. Commandment, law, sin, irrelevant. Man, we need to come back into alignment and know that that commandment that used to be our master in the old covenant is now our tutor that comes alongside us and says, this is God's best for you. And you go after it with everything that you have. And not if you fail, but when you fail, look to Christ, make a beeline to Christ and realize that he obeyed it perfectly and enjoy him. And in the enjoying, the spirit will refine you to where you look more like this Christ. We can't do that apart from commandment. And law. He's writing to a doctor this letter, and he, toward the end of the letter, he says these words. He, let, he says, Let me therefore beseech you to continue in the pure doctrine and to preach that sinners can and must be drawn to repentance, not only by the sweetness of grace, that Christ suffered and died for us, but also by the terrors of the law. Man, we need the tutor of the, the terror, or the terror of the tutor. <laughs> we need him to come alongside and show us what Christ, in fact, has done for us. And it's in the pursuing obedience that you find how short you come. And it doesn't leave you wasted like I'm a loser. It leaves you saying, forget me, God is good. And grace is sweet. And the gospel is a sweet scandal. And I'm truly amazed by it. God's law has gone from being our master to being our tutor. Christ's commandments tell us how to live, how to move, how to have our being in Him. We've been studying as a family a guy named Hammurabi. Hammurabi wrote this big list of laws couple hundred years before Moses. It's called Hammurabi's Code. He was a Babylonian ruler. And he, part of our study has been contrasting Hammurabi's Code with God's law. And we've learned so much about the sweet grace that God has given us, even in His law, in giving shape to sin and showing us what His best is for us. And there was a quote from the curriculum this curriculum is produced by Veritas Press. It's called Omnibus. And this quote was so good that I want to share it. Keeping God's commandments is our practical expression of love for God in response to his mercy. It's a good word. In response to his mercy and love in saving us. If we do not keep his commandments, we don't really know God and our Christian confession is a lie. 
That's taken straight, straight from 1 John chapter 2. Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. You want security? You find security in obedience. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Christ walked. Quote goes on to say, this does not mean we keep it perfectly. (laughs) Not even close. This does not mean we keep it perfectly since we are still sinners until God completes his work in us. We should delight in God's law and be disturbed mightily when we fall from obedience, knowing nevertheless that God has forgiven our sins eternally through grace. You want joy? That's where joy comes from. We can know no joy apart from knowing law, commandment, sin, and Christ. It's in that daily beeline that you come to discover true joy. Abiding in love and obedience go together. And obedience is more than a notion. Christy and I and a couple other families at Crosspoint are going through training right now for um, fostering our adoption with CPS. Actually, we just finished yesterday. And Christy and I came under conviction that we're reading so much about caring for orphans and widows and visiting, actually was the word that actually means caring for orphans and widows. And we're thinking, man, it's a notion for us, but do we really have the goods to foster or adopt? We're like, well, man, we're just trying to keep it in the middle of the road. In fact, my brother, my younger brother, who's in Afghanistan right now, we were emailing back and forth. He sent me an email. I told him we're going through training for this. He said, man, how are you going to do that? We're just trying to keep it in the middle of the road. And I'm thinking, me too. But then I'm thinking, if we're too busy to obey, something's got to go. If we're running 70 miles an hour, and obedience is at three miles an hour, walking speed. And we've got to slow down. Some things got to go. Because those who are truly His are going to obey. It's who we are. It doesn't earn our place in His family. It's just characteristic of His people. As we obey Him. So we make time for obedience. So Christy and I came under conviction that we needed to be trained and licensed, and that we would take it as it comes. As the Lord brings something to us, we'd pray about each situation, and we haven't gotten licensed yet, but we're working on that. One of the things that I was thinking about yesterday in our last training session, there's this old guy in there, and I don't know his motivation, but this old guy and his wife, I guess they're married. It might be a live-in deal. I don't know. It's sort of, things are, you know, we're not talking about a a Christian uh, ministry. We're talking about CPS. Some folks are doing it for all the wrong reasons. But this old guy has a crazy Star Trek collection. And I'm talking Star Trek collection. He's got white hair and a big ponytail. He just looks like the kind of guy that would have a Star Trek collection. He's got a whole room devoted to his Star Trek collection. A whole room in their house. And I just connected the dot yesterday. Gene or Emma, this lady has been teaching, has been talking about him for weeks. And we just saw him for the first time yesterday. And he was laughing about having to get rid of all the Star Trek stuff. And I'm thinking, man, this guy is moving out his Star Trek so a little orphan can move in. 
And I'm thinking, I don't know what his motivation is, but if that's a faith-driven motivation, I'm calling that obedience. Obedience finds purchase. It's more than a notion. It shows up in Tuesday. It shows up in your Star Trek room. It shows up on your cycling training. It shows up on your trip to L3. It shows up in your cubicle. It shows up at your dinner table. It shows up in the ordinariness of life. That's where obedience is on display. Man, I want to challenge you to be obedient with something that actually shows up. For me, a couple years ago, it was lose weight for the glory of God, so my spoken message reconciled with my visual message. You can lose weight for all the wrong reasons. So you look good in your clothes, that's about you. So you feel better about yourself, that's about you. Do it for the glory of God and it'll be a different motivation and it may be a different outcome. Do it so that your spoken message that says, I'm completely satisfied in Christ reconciles with what your body says. Or take in an orphan. It's more than a notion. The church ought to be, CPS ought to be a lean on the local church. It ought, the, the, the churches ought to fill these classrooms. An opportunity to foster and adopt and sow truth into the life of a little kid who's going through a tough time. We ought to minister to widows. There ought not be a widow in Greenville that the church isn't ministering to, both in and out of the church. Obedience finds purchase if it's really obedience. And the result of obedient abiding is joy. It's in verse 11, back in John chapter 15. You can turn back there if you'd like. Verse 11 says, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So this thing that we've built so far, as the Father loves Christ, so Christ loves us. As, the Father kept his, or as Christ kept his Father's commandments, we keep Christ's commandments. As Christ abides in his Father's love, we abide in Christ's love. We can add a fourth thing. As Christ is filled with joy, we too can be filled with joy. And Christ's joy is connected to his obedience. In so many words, he's saying, Obey my commandments as I've obeyed the Father, and your joy will be full as mine is ample. I fear that the reason so few people find joy is that they're coming at God the wrong way. Joy is not God somehow helping you out doing what you want to do. Joy is abandoning what you want to do and doing what God wants to do as an act of worship. That's where joy comes from. If you hope to find joy apart from obedience, I promise you this, you will not find joy. But you might find pleasure. Two different things. Turn to Ecclesiastes 2. This will be the last place we go this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The book of Ecclesiastes, we believe, was likely written by Solomon. We don't know that for sure. He refers to himself as the preacher. <clears throat> and it's a book really talking about how he spent his life. And it's summarized at the end with this man, I just kind of wasted my whole life. He pursued every, watch this word, pleasure. And he says, but I didn't find joy. You can hear it and it's dripping 
dripping with a broken heart. There's a difference between joy and pleasure. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I said in my heart, Come now, heart, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Look in verse 10. Here's what his life looked like when he set himself out to pursue every pleasure. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. He didn't have to. He had all the money in the world. He could have any and every woman that he wanted. He could have any and every experience that he wanted, whenever he wanted. So whatever his eyes thought, man, I want that. He not only could get it, he did get it. He says, I kept my heart from no, look at this word, pleasure. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. He summarizes pleasure as vanity. The word that's used is a word that sort of means vapor. Like if some of you ladies have a perfume dispenser, that's one of those little canisters that has the little poofy thing on the end. Poof, poof. You, you, you poof it out there and then you walk through it. <laughs> See, I've never done that when I've seen Christy do it. <laughs> and then it's gone. That's what pleasure's like. It smells good, but man, it's gone like that. In fact, at the end of the book, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And he says, The time's going to come eventually where you don't even find pleasure in the pleasure. It's gone. You're going to get old. And that stuff you'll find out is just vapor. Gone just like that. Like a puff of perfume. But he contrasts joy. In chapter 2, verse 24, some of my favorite scripture. It says, There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Here's where he connects to joy. This is from the hand of God. When you see these things coming from God. For apart from him, who can even eat? Who can cycle? Who can do anything and have enjoyment? Apart from God, who can do anything and find enjoyment? You can find pleasure, but you won't find joy. Verse 26, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge. You could say to the one who obeys him, to the one who abides in him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and, yes, joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Joy can be found only, only in him. That's biblical joy. In contrast with pleasure. I don't really have a cool closing. It's not cool. God is good. And I'm thankful for his word. I'm thankful that he shows us these things are just so tied together. Abiding in his love. Obeying him. And finding full, complete joy. They just go together. It's just meant to be. Let me pray.
God, I am so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful that if we take our time and we just chew on it and gnaw on it, meditate on it, if we take our time engaging it as worshipers and not as consumers, you just show us some sweet, sweet truth. Lord, I pray for all of us who so easily pursue pleasure that you will show us a kind of joy like Paul and Silas singing in jail after after they've been beaten. That you will show us a joy that endures the cross. That you will show us a full and complete joy that endures the difficulties of just life and braves them and not only survives them but flourishes through those difficulties. And in the work of that puts Christ on display. Lord, I pray that you'll show us what it means to be absolutely and completely consumed with you and who you are and what you've done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you will cause us to abide. Lord, I pray that you will cause us to obey for your glory. Guard us from doing it in our own efforts with a resulting pride. But do it in us much to our surprise and amazement so that we can give you all the glory as we see you at work. Lord, we are so thankful that our joy is and can be complete and full in you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In a moment, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. Um, had a pretty sobering morning, pretty sobering week, and it's appropriate. Um, um, just with the, what the Lord's been sharing uh, to us and for us, I've been contemplating this week, just leading in this. It's appropriate to you, Ben, that I'm wearing some of that sin you talk about. In Luke twenty-two nineteen, it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in verse 20, it says, And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That's kind of what stuck with me this week, this new covenant and, and what that was talking about. And I kept going back to Isaiah 58, though. As Scott shared a couple of weeks ago, there was just this picture. And it says here, instruction was, Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression. To the house of Jacob, their sins. This is the house of Jacob. This is those who are in Christ at Cross Point Fellowship. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness. And I have to tell you, I mean, that was, um, I spent some days contemplating my sin. Uh, things that I wink at. You know, we get pretty good at those things that are, we think are just, you know, apparent sins. And it's real easy for us to wink at things. And, and uh, Ben covered a few of those, and there are many more. 
And I thought about it. I went, uh, went back to Leviticus and was looking at the Old Covenant and things that were associated with that. Listen to this. Talking about the blood. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Any one of, also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it, should, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Their instruction was not to eat of that. Contrast that to John 6. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And die in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Looking at the Old Covenant, looking at this, and looking at the, even the Scripture, there's more Scripture. I'm not going to share all of them with you around it. I realize that this time that we spend over here, for me, in a lot of ways, had become kind of this altar. You know, the sins you week at through the week, and then, oh, I don't need to take this unless I'm square. So I'm going to come dump my sin just so I can do this and feel good about it rather than on Monday dealing with it. Abiding, Tuesday, abiding, Wednesday, abiding. This is, this is meant to be worship and see that Christ is sufficient. And we find in him grace and forgiveness. And sin is not one of those things we begrudgingly give up. It's something we want to cast off. Last week we were instructed to throw off those things that so easily entangle us. Those are the things that wear us down so that when the hard times come and the circumstances are hard, don't be weary from sin and then fall the first trial. Be done with the sin. There's joy and there's worship in that. This morning I shared a little bit about one of my Egypts. It's one of my Egypts. I have plenty others. And Lord drew Israel out of Egypt for the purpose that they may know that he is the Lord. And if you've got an Egypt, you need to embrace it and actually thank him for it. Because you need it. You don't know who he is otherwise. And man, I, <laughs> I want to make sure that this isn't like a weight loss Sunday. I mean, we've got our own, all of us have our own Egypt. But God uses that if we reckon with it. And if we say, Lord, please, I want to deal with this. I want you to draw me out of this. Show me how I can be drawn out of this for your glory so I can obey you and I can abide in you and I'll find full joy in that journey.
Man, that's, I think that's what worship is. That's what the journey of faith is. So I encourage you this morning. Steve said something this morning that when he said it, I know what he meant. He said, I'm wearing my sin. And you know what the real beauty is? While we do, that sin is corrosive, and we all have our Egypts that is just eating us up. Those who are in Christ are clothed in his righteousness. Because that's what we're wearing. We're wearing the fine linen of a risen Lord who is seated and we are living and walking in a Sabbath rest right now. So don't walk away from this Sunday thinking, man, I got to get to work. Think, man, I want to rest in Christ. I want to enjoy the risen Lord and I want to obey him. And those things that are in my life that don't reconcile with my adoption as one of his sons, I pray that by grace and mercy, he will bring them into alignment with who I am. And that that'll be a, a, a ministry of worship. You're that far from doing it for the wrong motives at any given point. From one day to the next, Lord, guard my heart from ever doing this as something earning or maintaining, but only in response to what you've already finished and completed because you are indeed finished. And it's in that Sabbath rest that I strive. Hebrews also says we strive to enter his Sabbath rest. That's a great way to put it. (laughs) The work is finished. We work within a finished work. That's where the joy comes from. When we take that supper week by week, man, we're celebrating a finished work and someone else's clothing that we're each wearing. Righteous clothing. Man, it's a sweet time this morning. I I want to um, call up a couple that I want to introduce for membership. Uh, Zach and Jean, y'all come on up. Uh, Zach and Jean I met with a few weeks ago and uh, they've been visiting with us for the last few months. And... um, I think in a lot of ways, a couple of things I want to say about Jack, Zach and Gene. One, one is that in some ways they've modeled what this journey should look like to be part of a church. It's not a, a, a membership role thing that we keep in a dusty old file cabinet. It's a commitment to be part of a people. And they've really examined this commitment. They've examined who we are as a people, what we believe, how we handle the word, and are better yet, are being handled by the word. And they said, man, we're agreeing with this. They're walking with small groups. They're part of a small group and are known and knowing. They are opening themselves up to the people of God in small group and even outside of that, connecting with other people. And they, in many ways, have modeled what it means to be part of a church. It's not a dusty old file cabinet note memo. It's a commitment to be part of a body. And that's what they want to do this morning. Uh, One of the things also that I want to say about Zach and Gene, I want to encourage you to get to know this couple and hear their story. They're writing a book right now about um, having lost one of their sons. Their other son is here this morning, but having lost one of their sons to an automobile accident. A drunk driver uh, took the life of their son. And in so many ways, they embody what I see, the essence of this morning's message, joy even in grief. Because you think they don't grieve? I hear it in them. I've seen it from them. I've talked to them about it. That you can continue to grieve and yet still find joy. Like Paul and Silas who had been beaten nearly to death. Who are singing in a jail cell. That's what joy is. It's not pleasure. That's joy. And man, get to know this couple and see joy in their lives. It's sweetness. Thank y'all for being here. Thanks for standing up here. Y'all stand. Y'all come meet this couple. Y'all stay up here. until. Y'all come meet this couple after we dismiss. Let me pray. God, we are thankful for the time that we've had together this morning. We are so thankful for the finished work of Christ that we live and move and have our being in a Sabbath. 
that is today and tomorrow and on this ordinary Tuesday where we're seeking to work so hard to be in alignment with who we are as one of your children. Lord, we are so thankful that we wear the fine linen, the righteous clothing of a risen Lord. And we count his work finished and we celebrate that. Lord, also this morning, we'll just thank you so much for bringing Zach and Jean into this body. And we just pray that they are loved well, that they are led well, that they are fed and nourished, that they continue to just walk with the people and being part of a people and that you will equip them for glory. Lord, we love you and your design and your timing, your goodness and your grace. We turn the rest of this day and this week over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.